0: James, thanks very much. Friends, it's wonderful to see you. My name's James as well. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a joy to have uh, the privilege of opening up these scriptures this morning. Uh, this is a thematic talk. Uh, you, you can't go really to one passage in the Bible and, and understand gluttony. So we're going to be looking at a range of passages and we're going to end up in Psalm 34, which uh, James just read for us so well. We need God's help. So let's uh, pray to him and ask him to help us as we come to this topic. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who speaks, and so we pray, speak to each one of us. Whether we think we have a problem in, in this area or whether we don't think we have a problem in this area, show us our hearts, change us to make us more like your son Jesus, for his glory and for our good. We pray in his name, amen. You've just had a big meal in a restaurant. Out came the, uh, the bread and dips at the beginning and you enjoyed them. Then came the, uh, the next course of pate on toast. Then a huge steak was glorious, covered in peppercorn sauce and triple-cooked chips. Then you finished. You're feeling nicely full, and the waitress comes and said, would you like to see the dessert menu? wonder what you do. You remember as you came in that there was a cabinet that had the most glorious-looking chocolate cake that was gooey and, and covered in that kind of buttery chocolate sauce, wonder what you do i guess many of us would order the chocolate cake but is that wrong just think about that for a second is it wrong to eat that chocolate cake you certainly don't need it you feel full is it wrong is it morally wrong is it sinful to eat that chocolate cake wonder what your answer in your mind is this morning as I've looked at this topic in the Bible, I've been surprised. Of all the, the things listed on that board, this is the, the, the one area I've f- thought about least. And I've noticed two strands in my heart, two strands in the church that pull in opposite directions. On the one hand, uh, my hunch is there'll be some here this morning who will say, of course it's not sin to eat that chocolate cake. It's just chocolate cake. It's just food. Who cares? And there, that does tap into a big strand of biblical evidence. The reality is, most of the Bible is overwhelmingly positive about food. There are Old Testament feasts commanded by God. Heaven is pictured as a feast. One pastor has said, If the New Testament has an overriding concern with food, it is that God's people not be overly concerned about it. Food does not commend us to God. And the kingdom of God does not consist in food, Romans 14. You'll know if you've read much of the Bible, there are lists of sins in in many places. They're called vice lists. Well, some might be surprised to learn that on none of those lists is the word gluttony featured. So if that's the case, why is gluttony on this list? Is gluttony really a big deal? But on the other hand, there's a streak within the church that is suspicious of too much of anything. It's kind of wary of pleasure. It's fine to eat chocolate cake, but too much is definitely wrong. It's great to have hobbies, but do your hobby too much, and that is wrong. As if the problem was with pleasure. And we have to admit that popular culture often portrays the church as anti-fun. Now, uh, it's a caricature, but caricatures only work when there's some substance to them. There's a brand of cookies I came across. Their sort of slogan is, so good, it's sinful. Picks up on the idea, doesn't it? Something is too, if it's too pleasurable, it must be wrong. Some popular slimming clubs call the the, the foods that will put people off their kind of target goal, uh, sin foods. Now, it's spelled differently, it's S-Y-N, not S-I-N, but you get the point. Too much of something that's good, well, that must be wrong, (laughs) must be sinful, And the result is, I think, a situation where many Christians can be plagued with the question, have I enjoyed something too much? Have I indulged in something too much? And in the area of food, that causes us to religiously watch our calories. The result is often worry, anxiety, shame, guilt. Well, I think both of those points of view have something in them. But they also both deeply miss the point. There is a sense that God is not concerned about food. But it's not about the food, is it? It's about our desires. It's about our hearts. It's not what we eat, but why we're eating it. Because why we're eating something gives an indication of what we value in our lives. But in the same way, the pleasure is not enjoying the food. Am I enjoying the food too much? As if God is anti-pleasure. But the question is, why am I enjoying the food? Am I enjoying the food as a good gift from my loving Heavenly Father? Or am I using food as a way to avoid my loving Heavenly Father? In the scriptures, as far as I can see, the phrase a glutton is a kind of catch-all term that is a kind of marker of somebody who's rebellious, who's turned away from God. In Matthew 11 or or Luke 7, we're told that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. They're doing it, so he must be guilty by association. In Deuteronomy 21, uh, a son is a a rebellious son, and he's stubborn, and he's described as a glutton and a drunkard. Now, the issue is not that he's uh, chewing down on too many Big Macs. The issue is that this gluttony is a mark, among, one amongst many, of a self-indulgent lifestyle turned in persistent rebellion his, from his parents and from God. Now, this is really important, because if we think this is about food, we miss the point. In 1997, the World Health Organization declared there was a major global epidemic of obesity. And my fear is this morning that the Director General of the WHO is watching on the live stream. And my great fear is he leaves a Connect card at the end that says, James, great job. Thank you so much for helping us with our war on obesity. Friends, if we go from here determined to cut our calories, we've missed the point. This is not die to snacking and rise to healthy eating. (laughs) Because the issue of gluttony is much more serious than that. It's the worship of food. It's the obsession with food. It's the inordinate desire for food that pushes God off the throne and enthrones our appetites. Paul captures it so clearly in Philippians 3 when he says this. Look at these words. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. They're glorious, they're shame, and they are focused on earthly things. If we're not careful, this gluttony makes us an enemy of the cross and will lead us to destruction. Now, I just want to say again it is not a sin to be overweight. You can't find a Bible verse that would say that. If you can, come and tell me afterwards. I'm convinced you cannot find a Bible verse that would tell you it's morally wrong to be overweight. Nor is the issue how much pleasure I am deriving. As if somebody who delights in food and, and kind of is discerning in what they eat is somehow more morally dubious than somebody who just eats whatever is put before them. The issue is, are we being mastered by our desires? When I read this Philippians 3 verse, I, I thought of a character in history. I wonder if you've heard of Reynald the Third. III. Reynald was a 14th century duke in what is today Belgium, and in his day, he was a fairly important figure. But Rainald was grossly overweight. History records that he was often known by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which simply means fat. One day, there was a violent quarrel between uh, Reynald and his younger brother, Edward, And Edward led a successful revolt against his brother. He captured him in battle, but he didn't kill him. Instead, he imprisoned him in a castle. It was a fairly novel method of imprisoning him. He literally built a room around his brother. And he told his brother he could reclaim the kingdom whenever he wanted. All he had to do was come and ask for it. Now, for most people, it wouldn't have been much of a problem. The room had windows and and a near-normal-sized door, none of which were locked or barred. The problem was Ronald's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother. Every day, he had his cooks serve up delicacies and send them to Ronald's uh, prison cell. And instead of losing weight, Ronald, in his comfortable prison, grew fatter and fatter. One day, Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, and he replied, I, ha- I am not cruel. My brother is not a prisoner. He may, lose- he may leave whenever he so, so wills. Well, Raunov may not have been a prisoner of his brother, but he certainly was a prisoner of his desires. His God was his belly. He was enslaved by his stomach. Someone has said, it. "The problem with food is not uh, the problem with overeating is not uh, so much the, the food, but overeating becomes a moral problem only when in, it makes us insensitive either to the demands of God or to the demands and needs of others. In other words, the problem with gluttony is it stops us loving God and stops us loving others." Now, the church has traditionally understood there to be two two sides to gluttony. On the one hand, there is the gluttony of excess. King Ronald, uh, Duke Ronald exemplifies that, doesn't he? Open your dictionary today and you'll see the definition of gluttony is excessive eating. And there's a, a sense that that's right. But there's another side to gluttony which we have almost forgotten. And that is the gluttony of delicacy. A sinful pickiness. A sinful pickiness. And I want to see that in a moment because both are manifestations of our stomachs being our gods. And in both cases, it stops us loving God or loving neighbor. Just think about the gluttony of excess first. Someone goes to the shops and buys a rather nice bar of chocolate. And they put it in their pantry and they, they just eat one square and they intend this kind of quite expensive chocolate to last a week. But every time they walk past the pantry, they eat another square. And by the end of the day, it's gone. And they say, I just could not help myself. I'm sure none of you know that experience. <laughs> but doesn't the phrase tell I could not help myself. I'm driven by something inside of me. Or at meals, when pleasure becomes an end in itself, the internal cry for more crowds out the sensible cry that says I've had enough. And that may be to do with pleasure. But something is driving us. It may be to do with something else. It may be to do with something nothing to do with food. The other day, Charlie and I went for a meal. And uh, we ordered what was supposed to be a sharing platter for two. And I'm not going to tell you where this restaurant was because it might cause some of you to sin too. But (laughs) this glorious platter of meat came. And it was far more food than two people needed. And um, I, I hate waste And so I kept eating, I was nicely full, and I kept eating and eating, partly because it was delicious, but partly because I hate waste, I paid for this. And I knew that I was being a glutton, because when the waitress came and said, would you like a takeaway box, I stopped straight away. And actually, I would have stopped 10 minutes before, I'd had more than enough, I was feeling enormous, but I kept eating, driven to keep eating, because I hate waste. Gluttony of excess. And friends, I just want to say again, this is not about obesity. You could be somebody here this morning who's fortunate enough to have the kind of metabolism that allows you to look like a beanpole and still be a glutton. And others of us just eat a tiny little bit of food and it seems to be on our hips. It's not about obesity. Or the gluttony of excess. But what about this gluttony of delicacy? being excessively picky. I think that C.S. Lewis captures this very, very clearly. If you don't know the screw tape letters, I commend them to you. They're a series of letters written by C.S. Lewis uh, from a senior devil to a junior devil. If you like, it's the reverse of our ministry apprentices. These are devils being trained how to deceive people and lead them to hell. And um, C.S. Lewis writes this, from the senior devil to the junior devil, Wormwood. My dear Wormwood... The contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last 100 years has been to deaden the conscience of that subject so that by now you'll hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it over the whole length or breadth of Europe. This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on cultivating gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your, mother's, your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glubo's, is a good example. She would be astonished. One day I hope she will be astonished in hell to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce quarrelsomeness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. Glubos has the old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sign and smile, oh please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the tiniest piece of toast. The woman is in what may be called the all I want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made, or an egg properly boiled, or a slice of toast properly cooked. But she never finds any servant or friend who can do these things simply, uh, these simple things properly, because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatial pleasures which she imagines. All I want. And her desires, not for great quantities, but for done exactly her way, are on the throne. And those who get in the way are run over. Gluttony of delicacy, stopping love of God, love of neighbor. Well, C.S. Lewis paints a funny picture of a 1940s upper-middle-class Englishwoman. But friends, look around. All I want is organic All I want is sustainably sourced meat. All I want is them to uh, to heat the coffee to the right temperature. All I want is them to bring the food out at the same time as the rest of the order. All I want. I wonder what you'd fill it in with. All I want. And when our desires are not met, we grumble because our God is our stomach. Interestingly, when Paul speaks of their God is their belly in Philippians 3, we think of somebody eating to excess. But actually, in the context, it's more likely that it's the gluttony of delicacy. Uh, In the context, different people uh, say slightly different things about what Paul's talking about. But in the context, it looks like he's referring to the Judaizers. That is a group of, of Jewish people who say that to be a really good Christian, you need to follow the Jewish laws. And that includes the food laws. And what they 've done is elevated their God uh, their stomach to their God. If you're a really kosher Christian, you'll eat certain things and avoid others. It's the gluttony of delicacy. Well we've been in Auckland these past few months. We've been enjoying getting a bargain box.'m Sure you know uh, the bargain box concept. They, they send you four or five meals a day, and everything's in there, so you, you don't have to um, kind of worry too much. It's been great for us with a, with a small pantry. But last week, Charlie uh, ordered the five things, and I said, darling, what have you ordered for dinner next week? And she said, well, actually, one of them is um, vegetarian. And I said, what? Vegetarian? (laughs) And there was a sense of moral outrage in my voice. (laughs) It's a gluttony of delicacy. I was once staying with somebody over a kind of... I think it was Christmas, something like that. And the host had ordered in a whole load of food. And another person was coming, and they were on some kind of detox diet. And despite the host making it pretty clear they were going to cook all this lovely food, this person brought with them all manner of strange-looking milkshakes. Well, they weren't really milk, some sort of shakes, uh, with almond milk. And basically, they said to the host, don't worry about cooking for me, I'll cook my own. And the point was pretty clear. Your food's not good enough for me. It's not healthy enough. All I want is my way. It's a sin of gluttony. Now, of course, some people have allergies. Friend, if you have allergies here this morning, please don't hear that that, that is the sin of uh, gluttony of delicacy. But equally, I wonder if some of us elevate our preferences to the level of medical needs. Uh, recently, my four-year-old son has started saying, I'm allergic to fish. <laughs> I just wonder where he heard that from. All I want is my way. My stomach is my God. I am not large. I am not fat. It is not about large quantity. But I am a glutton because of gluttony of delicacy. And that stops me loving God and loving others. Paul makes this really clear, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 6. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will do them uh, away with them both. The great question, friends, is are we mastered by the Lord Jesus? Are we consumed and captivated by his great love for us, his eternal glorious love, his eternal glorious goodness, or have we put in its place our stomachs? Something good and yet temporary, that will pass away in place of the eternal, ultimate God? Does food dominate you? Does it consume your thoughts? Where is the evidence of the sin of gluttony in your life? Where is it in my life? My suggestion would be, as we look hard, it is everywhere. But the question is, why is that so? Why is gluttony so pervasive? Well, the reason we're gluttonous, I think, is because we're hungry. The reason that our society is filled with gluttons is because it's absolutely ravenous. The author, Peter Peter Devere says this, gluttony is an emotional escape, a sign that something is eating us. And we are gluttonous for food because we are starving for God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about God setting eternity in our hearts. Augustine says that we have a God-shaped hole in our souls, and we quest to fill that hole with all kinds of things. Uh, the 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell said these incredible words, "'The centre of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, "'a searching for something beyond what this world contains, "'something transfigured and infinite. "'I don't think it is to be found.'" But the very thought of it is my life. I have a God-shaped hole and I need to fill it. Now, of course, we fill it in many ways, not just with food. But food is one of the chief ways, is it not? It's striking, isn't it? In an age of unprecedented prosperity and comfort, one of the words that most resonates with people in our age is empty. I just feel empty. Remember, very, very vividly, a few months before I became a Christian, I was lying on a sofa in Cyprus. I, it was my long summer holiday from university. I had a three-month uh, holiday. I was at a good university. I had a good summer job. I was on Cyprus, a party island, Mediterranean sun. I had everything I wanted. And I remember lying on that sofa one afternoon, absolutely empty, and thinking there must be more to life than this. Now, of course, we try and feel that in many different ways. I spent the next few months distracting myself, drinking, chasing girls, filling it with, with pleasures. But deep down, I was empty. Maybe there are some here this morning, and you know that feeling exactly. Maybe you're adept at hiding it with the latest toy or with food or with pleasures, whatever it might be, but you know ultimately your soul is empty. Well, the wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news that Jesus Christ brings to us is he offers to fill that God-shaped hole. Have a look at John 6. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with an extraordinary miracle, a few loaves of bread and fish, and he's fed this huge crowd. And then people afterwards come to him, and he says this, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, not because you saw I was God and would give you eternal life to, to fill your souls, but because you ate loaves and you were filled. You thought you might get another lunch from me, so you came to me. And then he says, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. They say, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. And then later on, he underlines the point. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. He's clearly not talking about uh, earthly food. But come to me, and I will fill that God-shaped hole. I will satisfy your true, deep, spiritual hunger. Augustine says, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the joy is when we come to trust in Christ, when we come to rest in him and eat the bread of life, he fills us. A few months later, after lying on that sofa, I met a girl in the University O-Week, and she had some kind of tangible, almost tangible joy about her that I couldn't explain. But a few months later, I realized what it was. As I met Jesus, as he filled that hole in my heart and filled and did away with that emptiness, There are some here this morning who do not know Jesus. Do you see what he offers you? An end to the dullness in our souls, that emptiness. But we need to rest in him. And it may be that there are some here this morning who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who are his, and yet you've stopped resting in him and begun to seek pleasure or to seek to dull the pain of living in a fallen world with something outside of Christ. And it leaves us empty. Isn't that so often why we snack? Just think for a moment, the last time you snacked. Why, why did you do it? If you can't think of something, think about it this week. When you snack this week, when you eat this week, why are you doing it? Of course, we eat in part to, to, because we're hungry. But so often, that's not why we're eating, isn't it? As I was writing this uh, sermon, there are a number of times I just got... I, It's just so frustrating. And I'd get up from my desk dissatisfied with what I'd written, and my instinct was to go to the pantry. (laughs) I'm not hungry, but there's something gnawing away inside of me. And I can short-circuit that problem with food. And that's right, isn't it? A a delicious piece of chocolate melting in our mouths deals with so much spiritual problems. (laughs) I feel a little bit depressed. So I eat some chocolate. I come home, and, and the traffic's been terrible, and I'm a bit grumpy, so I snack on some crisps. But the great problem is those desires should drive us to Christ. As I'm stressed, as I look at my week with so much to do, instead of gobbling down some Chris, I should go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have planned this week for me from the beginning of time. It feels overwhelming to me, but by your spirit, help me to live it in a godly way. And I fellowship with him. But instead, I short-circuit that process with a bowl of ice cream. That is why this sin is so dangerous because it drags us from fellowship with our heavenly father into imit- imitatory fellowship with food. And friends, if we, if we dulled the pain of life in this world with drugs or alcohol, we'd see the problem instantly, but do it with food. And the problem is hidden. I'm told that an older generation of Christians would come home from work and their habit would be to open a psalm, to revive their soul after a day's work with with a psalm. But what do we do? We flick on Netflix or scroll through Facebook or snack on some chips. What's the solution? The solution is to put our desire for Jesus at the center of everything. And I want to say four things as we wind up. Four ways that we can make sure that Jesus is the center of our desires. The first is this, eat to the glory of God. Eat to the glory of God. If we're not careful, our view of this world is so mechanized, isn't it? As if we just live in a kind of machine ruled by processes. And in that process, we just keep spinning and spinning. And food is fuel for our bellies, food to keep us going. But the Bible's view of the world is so different. In the Bible's view of the world, it's enchanted, It's sustained by our Father's loving hands. Food is not just fuel, it's a gift from God. The Heidelberg Catechism, a series of of questions and answers explaining the doctrine of the Christian faith, what we believe about God, says these words, the profound words. What do you understand by the providence of God? The answer comes, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Friends, as we eat, let's slow down and eat to the glory of God. Whether you have a glorious meal waiting for you at home, or beans on toast, it is a gift from your heavenly Father for you. Just think of that. The the way the food was grown was under his control. The fact it got to your house was under his heavenly control. It is on your dinner table because of your heavenly Father's goodness. It's your heavenly Father's gift, so eat to the glory of God. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. And I take it that means as Christians, we eat that food differently than an atheist does. And if we receive that food from our glorious heavenly Father's hand as a gift, how can we grumble? How can we complain it's not just how I like it? Eat food to the glory of God. Second, abstain to the glory of God. Abstain to the glory of God. Now we need to get this right because I think so much abstaining is anything but to the glory of God. So often we abstain to punish ourselves, don't we? I I didn't quite do what I wanted so I'm not going to have that snack. Or in Lent we maybe give up some chocolate as if giving up chocolate will somehow make us more acceptable to God. What a stupid idea. (laughs) Or we do it to prove that we can control ourselves. Don't abstain for that reason. But in a world where we are free, where we may want to crowd out some pleasures to focus on Jesus, abstain to the glory of God. Because we're not mastered by these things, because our our health and and our well-being does not consist in having exactly what we want, abstain to the glory of God and show the world around that you're contented in Christ. Secure whether you eat or not. Abstain to the glory of God. Third, link food and fellowship. Link food and fellowship. So often in the Bible, food is the context for fellowship. I, I loved what Tata said. That that's a wonderful reflect wonderfully reflected, isn't it, in Maori culture? That food is not just fuel, it's something that's done in community. But when food becomes about our desires, it's hard to have fellowship. Maybe you're thinking of signing up to host people for the mystery lunch. But you worry, will your food be up to their standard? It's my stomach in control. You're worried your house won't be clean enough. And so many things come in, and so we don't fellowship. But when, fellowship is about, when food is about serving the other person in the context of fellowship, it's hard for our desires to be enthroned there was a church that uh, desperately wanted to get a mystery kind of lunch going. And and the church was on board, it was a church quite like ours, and and people wanted to do it, but people just wouldn't sign up. And they wondered why. And the thing that broke it was when two students decided to invite a family to their dorm room. And this family with their kids sat on the floor, and these students served them cup noodles the food was anything but glorious but the fellowship was sweet and others saw what they'd done and it spread friends sign up for that mystery lunch let food be the context for fellowship and then finally feast on Jesus feast on Jesus just want to consider a few verses from Psalm 34 as we finish David is on the run from his domestic enemies. He's gone to Philistia. He has to pretend to be mad to stay safe among his foreign enemies. And in the context of that hiding away in a cave, he pens Psalm 34, which James read for us. Just look at verses 4 to 7, where David testifies what the Lord has done for him. He says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and rescues him. He says, the Lord is glorious. Look what he's done for me. And then he appeals to those in his day. He appeals to us to see the goodness of the Lord, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones fear the Lord for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry but those who seek the Lord will lack nothing, will, lack, will not lack any good thing. And friends, we need to keep coming back to the Lord and finding him faithful. Finding that when we walk his way, when we put him at the center of the desires, we are satisfied It's very interesting that here, as in so many other places, fellowship with the Lord is used, is explained by a metaphor for eating and drinking. And I take it that just with eating or drinking, our palate develops. I will never become a wine taster because at the moment, I'm frankly quite satisfied with a $10 bottle of wine. But somebody who, who becomes really knowledgeable about wine and can savor all the aromas in the palate, well, suddenly they become a bit snooty, it seems, about the $10 bottle of wine. And on a pastor's salary, I can't afford to be snooty about $10 bottles of wine. <laughs> but there is something, isn't there, about developing the palate so we savor the fullness of something good. Well, in this world, the problem is cheap wine doesn't satisfy. But there is no cheap wine with Jesus. So we need to develop our palate to savor everything in him so that when our desires push us to snacking or to overeating or to being fussy because it's not quite what we want, we reclaim that desire and say, that will not be fulfilled in anything but in my heavenly father. And we feast on Jesus. We train ourselves to eat the bread of life. Friends, we have this morning before us a glorious banquet set out. Just imagine one of those banquets, You know, one of the ones held in in a fancy hotel where there's everything, and there's one of those chocolate fountains, and there's those profiterole bowls filled with things, and there's a whole smoked salmon, and there's somebody roasting a wild boar in the corner, and it's just glorious, and you've got tickets to be there. And we've got tickets to feast at Christ's feast, but sadly, so many of us walk into the lobby of the hotel, and we can smell those flavors wafting through but on one of those tables in the lobby, there's somebody's leftover plate. A few half eaten crusts. And because we're hungry, we satisfy ourselves with somebody's leftover plate. Wouldn't that be madness? There's a feast just a few feet from us. And friends, it's the same with Christ. So many of us are so satisfied with junk. We fill our bellies with nonsense. When Christ, the bread of life, who promises to fill us and fill us full, is waiting for us to come in fellowship with Him. Let's go to Him and fill our souls. Let's find rest in Christ. Friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We praise you so much that you have made us to experience and enjoy pleasure, to delight ourselves. And we thank you for the so many good foods you've given us that give us satisfaction. And yet, Father, we pray that when we see them, when we eat them, we would do them with joy, knowing that you have given them to us as our heavenly Father, and not seek to make those good gifts, do the things that only fellowship with you, the good giver, can do. Father, forgive us when we've done that. Help those of us who are enslaved to gluttony or those of us who never had our eyes open to see the glories of the food in Christ. Open our eyes, free us, make Jesus the center of our desires that our souls might be truly satisfied and that he who gave his life for us may be glorified. In his name we pray, amen